Hello, and welcome to Reading Together, as we are rapidly approaching the end of reading Heaven Taken by Storm by Thomas Watson. And so, uh, this week we are looking at chapter 17, which is titled, Take Heed of Hindrances to Offering Violence. And what Watson presents to us in this chapter is he presents to us 10 hindrances uh, that will hinder us in our offering violence for the kingdom of heaven and being zealous for heaven, right? And so the hindrances that he lays out for us is one, take heed of unbelief. Two, take heed of puzzling thoughts about election. Three, take heed of too much violence after the world. Four, take heed of indulging any lust. Five, take heed of despondency of spirit. Six, take heed of lustful, slazy disposition. Seven, take heed of consulting with flesh and blood. Eight, take heed of listening to the voice of carnal friends. Nine, take heed of setting up your abode in the lowest pitch of grace. And then ten, take heed of the opinion that it is not so hard to get the kingdom. So as we've been doing with all the chapters here, um, I will not be presenting these, uh, giving exhaustive thoughts upon this chapter, but just what stood out to me. And so please make sure that you um, let me know what what stood out to you. I'd love to hear um, what um, what made the impact on you as you read through this chapter. And so the first thing that um, I'd like to point out is from the first hindrance that he points out is take heed of unbelief. And he says, when a Christian is working for heaven, unbelief whispers thus, to what purpose are all these pains? I might just as well sit still. I may pray and not be heard. I may work and have no reward. I may come near heaven, yet miss it. And they said, there is no hope. Isaiah 57.10 Unbelief destroys hope. If you cut this sinew of religion, all violence for heaven ceases. Mm. That is so true, right? We talked about this um, in my sermon where I preached on the uh, the helmet of salvation, which I believe is referring to the hope of salvation, because that's what Paul calls it in First Thessalonians when he refers to it as the hope of salvation. And so, hope is 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 our finish line, right, for the fight. Hope is hope is uh, is 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 where we have our eyes set to the hope that that this fight will not last forever. That one day we will enter rest. That one day uh, that, that, that 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 this race will be won. This fight will cease. Right. Hope is what prevents us from. Uh, boxing as one boxing the air, right? To use uh, Paul's analogy that he uses, right? Um, that a boxer that's just boxing with the wind, right? Is an Ecclesiastes style fight, right? It has a, it's a style with no point. And hope, hope helps us to see that there, that there is an opponent that we are, that we are fighting against, and there will be an end to the fight. The fight will cease. But unbelief keeps us from believing in that hope. And so, of course, it leads to that very thing, right? What's the purpose of praying? What's the purpose in being violent? What's the purpose in cutting off sin? Sin is pleasurable, right? Well, what's the point in 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 cutting off things that are immediately pleasurable to me if I don't have a an ultimate goal that is going to make that is going to make this self-denial worth it. And so, Nikki Watson is right in telling us to take heed of unbelief because it is that unbelief that can uh, that provides a seed into so much sin, into so much um, into so much slacking off in the violence, the zeal that we might have for the kingdom. 
And it's for this reason he, he, he closes out this point by saying, unbelief does the devil the greatest kindness. It makes way for his temptations to enter, which do so enchant and bewitch us that we cannot work. Hmm. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be like the man in the Gospel of Mark, who, uh, when, when, who when Jesus was, was asking Jesus to heal his son, cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There will be seasons where we battle unbelief. And so may that be our cry, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And may we take heed of that hindrance to us. The next hindrance that he speaks about is take heed of puzzling thoughts about election. And oh, this is such a good point, <laughs> especially since, um, since Calvinism, Reformed soteriology, predestination, um, that that is, uh, is, is, is always a hot topic to discuss. And so, um, what does he mean by this take heed of puzzling thoughts about election? Well, he explains. He says, a Christian may thus think, why should I take pains? Perhaps I am not elected. Perhaps I'm not one of God's chosen ones. And then all my violence, just to no purpose. And you can see somebody thinking this, right? Somebody who, who, who maybe doesn't have a, a, a full understanding of what exactly... Bible says about predestination, um, making this assumption of, well, what if I'm not a part of God's chosen ones? Then then all of my efforts, right, that they're pointless, they're worthless, and so I might as well just toss in the towel now, right? Am I, if I'm going to go to hell, I might as well enjoy earth while it lasts. Seems logical, right? Well, no. I love what Watson says. He says, for anyone to assert non-election is a sin. Mm. One more time. For anyone to assert non-election is a sin. And he argues that for this reason. For that which keeps him in sin must needs be sinful. And this opinion keeps him in sin. It discourages him from the use of means and cuts the sinews of all endeavors. So do not perplex your, perplex your thoughts about election. This book is sealed and no angel can unclasp it. And so in other words... The, the thought of us not being elect is sinful because that thought that I am not chosen by God is going to, is, is, is going to lead me into sin. It's going to lead me into that unbelief that says, well, there's no point in praying. God's not going to hear me anyway because I'm not one of his chosen ones. Man, what a great answer to that, to that problem, right? Of, of well, well, maybe I'm not elected. Well, no, but the, the thought process of saying of saying that I'm not elected, that is sin, because that'll lead you into more sin. And then he goes on and he talks about um, that we must devote ourselves to the revealed will of God, not to the secret will, right? Like God, God knows. He has ordained everything to play out. Um, and, and, and in his sovereignty, history will unfold exactly as he has ordained it. Our job is not to know all the secret things. Our job is to know what God has called us to do. And Watson points out two things primarily. Pray and repent. Right? Give ourselves to those things. Give ourselves to following after what he has told us to do. What will happen is, is, is according to his will, his design. And let us leave that to him and take confidence in him that he will work it out. So, hindrance number three. 
take heed of too much violence after the world. My favorite point that he makes from this, um, from this hindrance is he says, he may have Christ and the world, but cannot love Christ and the world. He that is all on fire for the world will be all ice for heaven. Take heed of engaging your affections too far in these secular things. Use the world as your servant, but do not follow it as your master, right? And I think this is such a great point because it's the point that he made last week of that of the, we must be engaged in secular things, right? The, we live in the world, right? But as Jesus said, we're supposed to be it. We are in the world, but we must not be of the world, right? And so we should be of use to the world around us. We should be employed in the world around us. We should be working in the world around us. And so the Christian may have Christ and the world, but we cannot both love Christ and love the world. And so make sure, brothers and sisters, take heed of your affections. Take heed of engaging your affections too far in these secular things. Use the world as your servant, but do not follow it as your master. What wonderful advice. The fourth hindrance that he gives to us is take heed of indulging any lust. And I love uh, that he, he, he goes in and talks about the danger of sin at the beginning of this. Sin lived in will spoil all violence for heaven. It enfeebles. It is like a, the cutting of Samson's hair. And then strength departs. It's the soul's sickness. It takes off a man's legs and so dispirits him that he is unfit for any violence. Sick man cannot run any race. A sin lived in takes a man quite off his duty and makes him dead in it. I love this line. The more lively the heart is in sin, the more dead it is in prayer. How can he be earnest with God for mercy, whose heart accuses him of secret sin? Have you ever known that to be true? I don't know if there's a more true thing that he says, that, that he has said in this book. The more lively a heart is, in sin, the more dead it is in prayer. The two cannot co-inhabit. Right? You want a better prayer life? One of the best things to do is to mortify sin. To kill sin. You want to mortify sin? <laughs> Dive into prayer. <laughs> right? Because they cannot coexist. We cannot be petitioning the throne of grace and still being indulging in our sins. Another thing he says before closing out this hindrance is he says, many will leave all their sins but one. And he says this, save one sin and lose one soul. One sin is a fetter. A man may lose the race as well by having one fetter on his leg as if he had more. Mm. And he gives this wonderful analogy um, where he says, I've read of a great monarch who, fleeing from his enemy, threw the crown of gold on his head so that he might run faster. So that sin which you wore as a golden crown, throw it away that you may run faster to the heavenly kingdom. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, is there any sin in you that is hindering you from violence, from being violent for the kingdom of heaven, from being violent in your pursuit of Christ? Toss it aside. Throw it away and pursue after the one who is infinitely worthy. And I love that he makes this next Point, hindrance number five. Take heed of despondency of spirit. Despondency of spirit. 
And he explains it. He says this, be serious, right? <laughs> Hopefully, if you've learned nothing else from Watson throughout this book, you would know that he is serious, right? Be serious, but cheerful. He whose spirit is pressed down with sadness is unfit to go about his work. An uncheerful heart is unfit to pray or praise God. And then he closes out this section, that that point by saying cheerfulness is like music in battle. It excites a Christian's spirits and makes him vigorous and lively in duty. What is done with cheerfulness is done with delight, and the soul flies most swiftly to heaven upon the wings of delight. Right? And we see this in doing meditations through Psalm 1, verse by verse, through Psalm 119. This is what we see in Psalm 119, of the psalmist praying uh, for the to, to delight himself in God's word, right? We should be a people who, we, we have found the fountain of all joy. And so we should be a people of joy, right? But we, but we have joy in such a way that it is, as Paul described, a, a sorrow, but always rejoicing, right? And that's because we hold before us the cross, which is where the greatest joy and the greatest sorrow that the world has ever seen, they meet and they co-mingle together with one another, right? And so we and so we are serious, but we are also cheerful, or we should be, at least. Or Lewis um, said this well in, uh, in the uh, seventh Narnia book, where he talks about um, that the, where he talks about that there's a a happiness that makes one serious, that it's too good to waste on jokes, right? That's the happiness that Christian that Christianity offers. And so may we be a people who are cheerful, serious, yes, right? There's a difference between there's a difference between merriment and frivolity. Christianity is not a frivolous religion. And I would, I would argue that a Christian who dives into frivolousness is in sin. But a Christian should be cheerful. A Christian should be merry, right? But nothing that we do is frivolous because frivolous implies light and vain, right? Everything that we do is tinged with seriousness, with weightiness. Hmm. So may we be serious but cheerful. The next point, next hindrance that he tells us to take heed of, to cast away is a slothful lazy disposition, right? He makes the point there that many, instead of working out salvation, as Paul tells us to do, sleep away salvation. And so, um, may we shrug off. Hopefully, if anything in this book has has taught us, uh, has, has pointed out to us, is um, that slothfulness is the opposite of violence, right? And so, shrug away any slothfulness in your souls. The next hindrance, is that he tells us um, to take heed of consulting with flesh and blood. And he tells us this because you may as well consult the devil as the flesh. The flesh is the bosom traitor. An enemy within the walls is the worst enemy, right? And that is exactly what it is, right? Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it, right? And so the Tells us, and Watson tells us, the flesh cries out for ease. It is low to put its neck under Christ's yoke. The flesh is for pleasure, and it would rather be sporting than running the heavenly race. And then he ends this point um, with this 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 paragraph that he uh, that that he he mentions in another book. I, I, I believe that it's 
that he mentions it in the uh, godly man's picture, though it may be the Lord's Prayer. Um, so uh, don't quote me on it, but I think it's, it's one of those two. Um, where he says, Such a one was spoken in Beard's theater, who strove to please all of his five senses at once. He had a room richly hung with beautiful pictures. He had the most delicious music. He had all the choice aromatics and perfumes. He had all of the candies and curious preserves of the confectioner. He was lodged in bed with a beautiful mistress. Thus he did indulge the flesh and swore that he would spend all his estate to live one week like a god, though he were sure to be damned in, on, in hell the next day. Now, that analogy <laughs> stands is, is, is very poignant, and it stands out to me because that's kind of how we live today, right? As we live as a people who, who are so wealthy, Especially, I mean, especially in a historical sense, right? Um, many of the um, many who are who are um, who are by no means rich today um, still have a lifestyle today uh, that would be that would that would far outclass some even kings in the ancient world, right? But he says that this man tries to indulge all five of his senses. And he has a room that's hung with beautiful pictures, right? So something pretty to look at, right? But we have something beyond just pretty pictures. Now we have blockbuster movies, right? We have moving pictures <laughs> that entertain and delight, right? And now we don't just have them in a theater to we, that we can go into. Now we, we bring them into our house. Now we have television, right? We have Netflix that we're able to... That, that, that has far more entertainment on it than we would ever be able to get through in our lifetime if that was the only thing we did. The most delicious music, oh, well, now we have Spotify, right? We can pull up whatever music we want at any time we want. We can constantly have music before us. And had all the choice aromatics and perfumes. Well, now whatever candle, whatever essential oil we want, right? We have at our fingertips. Some of them are a little bit expensive, right? But most people here in the Western world, the industrialized world, can, can make the effort to purchase them. And he had all the candies and curious preserves of the confectioner. So he had sweets, right? A trip down the candy aisle of Walmart. And we have access to sweets that this guy probably wouldn't have even dreamed of. And he was lodged in a bed with a beautiful mistress. And now we have the internet, right? Not to, not just to say um, that that prostitution is still an industry that totally exists, right? But no, but now we have internet pornography that allows that allows any man, any woman, as well. Not since pornography is not just a, a men's sin, but any person to have a harem, a virtual harem that far outclasses Solomon with his 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so thus he did indulge the flesh and swore that he would spend all his estate to live one week like a god, though he were sure to be damned in hell the next week. So my question is, is that what we're doing? Is that what many of us are doing here in, in in the 
industrialized modern age, right? Living the life of gods, indulging our five senses. I pray that we wouldn't, right? And I'm, this isn't this isn't to say um, that, that modernization is is wrong. I don't think that it's wrong at all. I think that that um, that we're called as human beings to push back the fall to make the world a better place, right? Um, and so I think that modernization, in general, is a is a good thing, right? But as believers, we need to take care of it. Do we live for entertainment? Do we live to see to have our to have our senses indulged? And one of the dangers for us today is because it is so ubiquitous. Because it is, because the pressures of entertainment are everywhere around us. If we do not take heed, if we do not take specific heed then we could then we could very easily fall into the same sin that that man in the play in the theater um gave uh gave 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 much effort to get for one week we can spend our entire lifetimes just indulging our five senses living like gods even if we will be damned into hell the next day so may we take heed. Next, take heed of listening to the voice of such carnal friends. And, and one of the things that he points out here is he says, this is one of the devil's greatest subtleties to hinder us from religion by our nearest relations and to shoot us with our own rib. He tempted Adam by his wife. And then he also mentions Joe being told by his wife, to uh, to curse God and die, right? And so we should take hindrance that, that sometimes those that are closest to us in a moment of weakness, I heard um, John Piper in a sermon that he preached over Job, he called Job's wife's words, he called them words for the wind. Um, so, so our friends don't necessarily um, have to, our, our friends don't necessarily have to be carnal, don't necessarily have to be um have to be intending um, to pull us away from our duties of religion, right? But and, you know, of, of our of giving our violence for heaven, but we must take heed that we devote ourselves to Christ first and foremost. The next hindrance that he speaks of um, is he says we must take heed of setting up your abode in the lowest mark of grace, which can sound a little confusing, but essentially what he's saying is. Make sure that you don't content yourself with just getting enough grace. With well, if I, you know, if I just, you know, if I'm if I'm the the person that squeaks into heaven, well, that'll be fine. You know what I mean? But the problem is, is that if we content ourselves with only having just a, a little bit of grace, with just having enough, just making sure that well, I want to I want to still live in the world, right? I'm I may be. You know, I, I I may just just squeak into the kingdom, but but I'll get there, right? But the problem is, is, if we contend ourselves with not being violent for the kingdom, if we contend ourselves with not being a devout believer, with not being a devout follower for Christ, is that how do we know that we truly are following Christ, right? And I love what he says when he talks about that uh, that that uh, that the, the person. That has that's weak in grace is a sick person, right? And he says a sick man may have life, 
but is not lively. Grace may live in the heart, but it is sickly and does not flourish into lively acts. Weak grace will not withstand strong temptations or carry us through great sufferings. It will hardly follow Christ upon the water. Little grace will not do God much service. And so take heed. O labor, as Watson says, O labor to grow in further degrees of sanctity. The more grace, the more strength. The more strength, the more violence. And finally, he closes out the chapter with the tenth hindrance. Take heed of the opinion that it is not so hard to get the kingdom. Hmm. This is a wonderful point to end on. Because we know that it is grace. It is grace that we do receive heaven. It is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Right, But the point that he makes there is that if we think that it's easy to get to heaven, then we won't offer violence. Right? That it is not so hard to get to the kingdom, hence less violence will serve. He that thinks he need not run a race so fast will be apt to slacken his pace. This has undone many. Who will take pains for heaven who thinks that it may be had at a cheaper rate? But, oh, brothers and sisters, heaven is worth the violence. Heaven is worth the effort. Heaven is worth all that we have, right? And so let us pursue after Christ. Everything else that this world can offer to us, everything that we could else, else that we could possibly have, is like is as rubbish in comparison to the unsearchable riches of Christ and of knowing Him who is our Lord. And so, let's devote ourselves to Him and let us give violence to the kingdom, taking heed of the meekness that stand in our way. Grace and peace.